Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story. This week, where we'll look at how movies depicted historical events that happened between January 30th and February 5th. Let's get into it. January 31st, 1865, Washington, D.C. Our first movie gives us some text on screen to tell us it's the morning of the vote. Tommy Lee Jones's character, Thaddeus Stevens, sits down in an empty room. It's quiet, the calm before the storm. The camera cuts to the upper balcony. There are more people in the room now. It's filled with people, actually. Two rows of black men and women enter the upper balcony and find their seats. All the men below are quiet as they watch them enter. And then one of the men greets them. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, first in the history of this people's chamber to your house. A round of applause. David Constable's version of James Ashley starts to speak, and we learn why this occasion is so important. Today, we are here for regarding the matter of adding a 13th Amendment to the Constitution. This amendment was passed by the Senate last year, says Mr. Ashley. We've debated for the past several weeks. Today, we vote. They are to have final statements before the vote, though, and the first causes a ruckus as Peter McRobbie's version of George Pendleton from Ohio says he's received confirmation that there's a delegation from the Confederacy in Washington, D.C., bearing an offer of immediate cessation of the war. He proposes they postpone the vote until they hear from the president himself. Seeing this, James Spader's version of W.N. Bilbo and a couple others rush a note from the Capitol building to the White House where President Lincoln is waiting to hear about the result of the vote. After Lincoln reads the vote, he writes something down and hands it to Joseph Cross's character, John Hay, to give to Mr. Ashley. At first, Hay questions this, saying there's a delegation and making a false representation to Congress is impeachable. Lincoln says... He hasn't made a false representation. Then he hands the note to Bilbo and tells him to deliver it to Mr. Ashley. Bilbo does. Mr. Ashley reads the note aloud to the house. So far as I know, there are no peace commissioners in the city, nor are there likely to be. Despite some ongoing disagreements, the motion to postpone the vote is tabled. So they are going to vote. And they do. Representatives are called by name, and each one of them gives their yay or nay on the amendment. People are tallying the votes, counting down how many it will take to win. Fifteen. Eight. Six. Finally, Speaker of the House Scholler Colfax wishes to cast an aye vote because, as he puts it, this isn't usual. It's history. Speaker Colfax reads the final vote. Eight absent or not voting. Fifty-six votes against. One hundred and nineteen votes for. With a margin of two votes, and then the camera cuts to President Lincoln in the White House, church bells can be heard in the distance. Cannons are blasting. In the House of Representatives, there's cheering and celebrating. Outside, throngs of people are cheering and singing. The 13th Amendment passed. The depiction of this week's event comes from the 2012 movie simply called Lincoln. While we don't know the specifics of things like that note the movie shows from President Lincoln, it is true that on January 31st, 1865, the United States House of Representatives voted to pass the 13th Amendment of the Constitution, abolishing slavery and involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime. This was a momentous event in history because even though President Lincoln had passed the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863, 
That proclamation made all the slaves in Confederate states free. Since the Civil War was still raging, though, it's not like the Union could uphold the proclamation in Confederate states that easily. It was not the end of slavery in the United States, but it can be considered the beginning of the end. That process started the same year when James Ashley from Ohio that we see in the movie introduced an amendment to ban slavery on December 14th, 1863. As battles raged across the United States during the American Civil War, political battles raged in Washington, D.C. as lawmakers on either side of the aisle debated the amendment that would end slavery. On April 8th, 1864, the Senate passed the amendment by a vote of 38 to 6. That's eight votes over the required amount to pass. Then the amendment went to the House of Representatives. It was first debated there on June 14th, 1864, and it failed to pass in a vote on the following day. That vote was 93 in favor, 65 against, and 23 not voting. Since a two-thirds majority is needed to pass an amendment to the Constitution, the 13th Amendment failed. The 13th Amendment was then brought back up by President Lincoln on December 6th, 1864, who urged a reconsideration of it. More debates followed at the beginning of 1865. January 6th, 7th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 28th were filled with debates in the House of Representatives about the 13th Amendment. Then... Just like the movie shows, on January 31st, 1865, the House of Representatives voted on the 13th Amendment again. This is a quote from the Congressional Globe, a document in the Library of Congress about that event. Mr. Dawson called for the yeas and nays. The yeas and nays were ordered. The question was taken, and it was decided in the affirmative. Yeas, 119. Nays, 56. Not voting, 8. As follows. Then the document lists each of the members of the House of Representatives who voted yay, who voted nay, and who decided not to vote. I'm not going to read each and every one of those names here, but then the document continues. So the two-thirds required by the Constitution of the United States, having voted in favor thereof, the joint resolution was passed. During the roll call on Mr. English and Mr. Ganson voting A, there was considerable applause by the members on the Republican side of the House. The speaker called repeatedly to order and asked that members should set a better example to spectators in the gallery. Mr. Kovflesh and other Democratic members remarked that the applause came not from the spectators in the gallery, but from members on the floor. The speaker, members will take their seats and observe order. The speaker directed the clerk to call his name as a member of the House. The clerk called the name of Schuyler Colfax of Indiana. And Mr. Colfax voted A. This incident was greeted with renewed applause. The Speaker, the constitutional majority of two-thirds having voted in the affirmative, the joint resolution is passed. The announcement was received by the House and by the spectators with an outburst of enthusiasm. The members of the Republican side of the House instantly sprung to their feet and, regardless of parliamentary rules, applauded with cheers and clapping of hands. The example was followed by the male spectators in the galleries, which were crowded to excess, who waved their hats and cheered loud and long, while the ladies, hundreds of whom were present, rose in their seats and waved their handkerchiefs, participating in and adding to the general excitement and intense interest of the scene. This lasted for several minutes. 
You'll notice that event we saw in the movie where the speaker asked for his own name to be mentioned. That really did happen. After this, the House voted on a motion to adjourn, which also passed. And so at 4.20 p.m., the House adjourned for the day. If you want to read more about that event or even read all of the names that I skipped over in my reading, you can find the document on the Library of Congress's website. Look for A Century of Lawmaking for a New Nation, U.S. Congressional Documents and Debates, 1774 through 1875, and the events of January 31st, 1865, are on page 531. If you want to watch the events in the 2012 movie Lincoln, you will find the morning of the vote starting at about an hour and 47 minutes and 23 seconds to be precise. And if you want to take a deeper dive into the true story behind the movie, including about that delegation from the Confederacy in D.C. at the time of the vote, check out episode number 170 of Based on a True Story to learn about the historical accuracy of the movie from Lincoln scholar Dr. Brian Dirk. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history, too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four-hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden, I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. January 31st, 1929, Germany. It's quiet. A fox sleeps, the baby sniffing around busily. From overhead, we can see dead soldiers lying on the frozen ground. A spattering of gunshots sound, followed by dirt being kicked up as they hit around the soldiers. But everyone is dead already, so there's no movement. The camera dollies in closer to the ground. Still no movement other than random gunshots and explosions here and there. Then the camera cuts to the German trenches. A machine gun spits out shots while soldiers run this way and that in the trench. Soldiers go to the ladders at the order of their commanding officer. Heinrich, get out there, is the order that we hear when we see someone climb the ladder to the top of the trench. The moment he's at the top, a bullet hits him in the head and he falls back into the trench, dead. Orders continue. All of you, go. Heinrich goes to tend to his fallen colleague, but the officer stops him. Heinrich, get out there, attack! And Heinrich climbs the ladder, his now deceased friend 
just took to his death. Heinrich and plenty of other Germans make it up, though, and the camera follows them as they rush forward, charging toward an enemy that we can't see. None of the soldiers shoot. They just run. They're all being shot at all the time. Men fall. Heinrich keeps going, panting as he drops down behind a fallen tree for some cover. Another soldier calls his name, Heinrich. But just as Heinrich gets to him, the soldier is shot and killed. Heinrich goes back to behind the log. Explosions kick dirt onto him. Another soldier falls next to him, blood covering his face as he lies there, dead. Heinrich pants as he cocks his rifle and points at it rather shakily over the cover. He shoots, cocks it again, shoots again. He's not looking at where he's shooting. He leaves the rifle now and pulls out his axe and runs straight ahead. Seeing an enemy soldier, he screams as he sticks the blade of the axe in the man's chest. Halfway through the scream, the scene cuts to black with the title of the movie. All quiet on the Western Front. Okay, so I'm cheating a little bit here when it comes to the historical events because if you listen to the Based on a True Story episode number 218 where we covered the movie All Quiet on the Western Front, we learned that the movie is based on a novel. So it's not really supposed to be based on a true story in the sense of the term that we're used to. But the event this week that is of significance was on January 31st, 1929, and that is when Eric Maria Remark first published the novel in Germany. Well, sort of. You see, the story was published from November 10th to December 9th in 1928 in a serial form, but the book form was published on January 31st, 1929. The reception for the book wasn't really that great at first. While plenty of readers loved the realism of the story and how eloquent Remark's words were, there were a lot of people in Germany who looked at his book as slandering a German war effort. Because even though World War I was over, a new war was about to begin. The book was banned by many countries because of its anti-war message. Austria banned their soldiers from reading it the same year it was published, 1929. Czechoslovakia, the same, and in 1933, Italy joined the ban. That year, 1933, All Quiet on the Western Front was one of the first books to be denounced and publicly burned by the Nazi party. However, many anti-war movements used the book as a way of helping to spread their own message against the evils of war. So, its popularity continued to spread. In April of 1930, the book was adapted into a movie for the first time, that only helped spread the popularity of the book. Then, of course, in 2022, there was the latest on-screen adaptation of the book. So if you want to learn more about the historical accuracy of the 2022 movie, check out episode number 218 of Based on a True Story with Dr. Christopher Warren from the National World War I Museum and Memorial. February 2nd, 1959, Clear Lake, Iowa. There are little drifts of snow piled up along the street corners. A tow truck drives by, pulling a big bus with a sign on it that says, Winter Party 59. As it passes by a big building, the camera shifts angles to show a better look of the large stone building. People are bundled up in warm coats as they make their way out of the cold night air and up the steps to the front doors. Above the steps in the entryway reads a big sign that says WIOA Radio presents Winter Party 59. Then, above that obviously temporary sign is the name of the building, Clear Lake Auditorium. 
The marquee on the auditorium mentions the date, February 3rd. Also mentioned are the musicians playing tonight's concert, Dion and the Belmonts, Big Bopper, Richie Valens, and at the top of the marquee is the headliner, Buddy Holly. Inside, we see Big Bopper performing. Backstage, Gary Busey's version of Buddy Holly makes a long-distance call to New York City. A woman in bed answers the phone. She's excited to hear Buddy's voice. He addresses her as Maria. Buddy mentions something about how they just got there because their bus broke down, so they're going to have to rent a plane tonight. That must be the bus that we saw a moment ago with the Winter Party 59 sign on it as it was being towed away. Maria tells Buddy that they're both doing fine. She kicked me this morning, and Buddy gets excited to hear it. She must be pregnant with their child. As Big Bopper wraps up, Buddy tells Maria he has to go. He'll call tomorrow. Love you. Bye. Then he hangs up the phone. Just then, two guys enter Maria's apartment. They seem to be friends of Buddy's, and they tell her they weren't sure if he'd want to get back together. She says he'd love to. They say they're going to fly to Iowa to surprise Buddy, but they want to know where the show is going next. So Maria looks it up. Tomorrow, he'll be in Moorhead, Minnesota, 8 p.m. Back on stage, the crowd goes crazy as Big Bopper introduces who he calls a fellow Texan, Mr. Buddy Holly. We see a decent amount of the sets in the movie. It starts off with a slow song called True Love Ways, before getting more upbeat with a medley of Buddy Holly's classic rock songs like That'll Be the Day, Oh Boy, and Peggy Sue, among others. Big Bopper and Richie Valens join Buddy Holly on stage to perform the big finale at the concert. Then, just as Buddy says, We love you, Clear Lake. We'll see you next year, to end the concert, the music and the roaring crowd fade away. Text on the screen tells us that Buddy Holly died later that night with JP, the Big Bopper, Richardson, and Richie Valens in a crash of a private airplane just outside Clear Lake. And the rest is rock and roll. This depiction comes from the 1978 movie called The Buddy Holly Story. And right away, you might have noticed a discrepancy. When we started this event, I gave the date of February 2nd, 1959, while the date on the marquee sign of the Clear Lake Auditorium in the movie said February 3rd. The true story is that the final performance for Richie Valens, The Big Bopper, and Buddy Holly was at the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa on the evening of February 2nd, 1959. The plane crash that took the lives of all three musicians was in the early morning hours of February 3rd. While the movie is correct to mention the tour bus breaking down as the reason why the musicians took a plane, there's more to the story that we don't really see in the movie. On February 1st, JP, the Big Bopper Richardson, Dion DiMucci from Dion and the Belmonts, Richie Valens, Buddy Holly, and other musicians on the tour were driving from their last concert in Duluth, Minnesota. It was in the early morning hours of the 1st when near Hurley, Wisconsin, the tour bus threw a piston. Without heat on the bus, the musicians had to burn newspapers in the aisle of the bus for hours to battle the freezing cold. Temperatures that night were around negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit, or about negative 34 degrees Celsius. They managed to find another bus, which they boarded near Green Bay, Wisconsin. They were headed to the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, Iowa, where their next show was. That's about 350 miles or about 560 kilometers away. That bus didn't have much luck against the frigid temperatures either. Just before they made it to Clear Lake, the heaters on the bus failed. Now, from my research, I couldn't find anything to suggest the bus itself was broken down, but the heaters were not working, and that was enough. 
the bus had to be repaired. But they managed to make it to the surf ballroom in time for their 8 p.m. concert. But because of their bad luck with buses, Buddy Holly decided he didn't want to get on a bus for the next stretch of the road. The bus breaking down and just barely making it to Clear Lake in time for the show meant they were all tired and dirty, like they hadn't done laundry in a while. Now, the movie was also correct to mention their next show was Moorhead, Minnesota. If you remember, I just mentioned that they were in Minnesota before going to Iowa. So you're probably wondering why they were doing that. Well, you're not alone. The whole tour was rather poorly planned out. So the musicians had to crisscross a lot and added on the bus breakdowns. Buddy was looking forward to a few extra hours of relaxation time that flying would give him before everyone else arrived on the bus for the show. Buddy asked the manager at the surf ballroom to look into getting a flight for their next show. They were flying into Fargo, North Dakota, which is right along the state border and about a mile away from their next show in Moorhead, Minnesota. While the manager found a flight, the musicians had a show to do. Tickets that night were $1.25 and over 1,200 people showed up. Pretty good numbers considering the town of Clear Lake had a population of around 8,000. Lots of people coming in from out of town, no doubt. Oh, and that $1.25 ticket in 1959 is about the same as $12.75 today. The concert itself went off without a hitch. And the manager was able to find a plane. It was a Beechcraft Bonanza airplane, which seats four people. One of those seats was for the pilot, a man named Roger Peterson. So that left three for the musicians. But there were more musicians than that, which means that they had to figure out who would fly and who would end up taking the bus anyway. Buddy was the one who wanted to fly, so he was one of them. Richie Valens and another in the band, Tommy Alsup, both wanted one of the seats, so they actually flipped a coin for it. Valens called heads, and it came down heads, so he won the seat. The last seat was going to another band member, Waylon Jennings, but he offered to let Big Bopper take the seat instead because Big Bopper had come down with the flu, so that extra time in Moorhead would give him some extra time to recuperate before the rest of the musicians arrived for the show by bus. And, and if you're a fan of country music, yes, it was that Will and Jennings that almost got on the plane. And so it was that Big Bopper, Richie Valens, Buddy Holly, and pilot Roger Peterson got into the plane. They took off just before 1 a.m. on Tuesday, February 3rd, 1959. They made it six miles before the plane crashed. All four on board were killed. The cause of the crash was determined to be because the pilot, Roger Peterson, was only qualified to fly using visuals and not only using instruments. Since the weather was so bad, they couldn't see well enough to fly visually. And on top of that, there had been some speculation that he also maybe wasn't familiar with the instruments in the Beechcraft Bonanza plane that he was flying. Today, February 3rd is known as the day the music died because singer-songwriter Don McLean referred to it in his popular song, American Pie. While the crash itself is not shown in the movie, the movie that I was describing to start this segment is the 1978 biopic simply called The Buddy Holly Story. It does show Buddy's last concert in Clear Lake, Iowa, though, and that starts at an hour and 37 minutes into the movie. Oh, and as a fun little bit of trivia, my best friend is Buddy Holly's cousin. So, as you can imagine, her family knows quite a bit about the real Buddy Holly. She told me his last name originally was spelled... H-O-L-L-E-Y. But his wife, or mom, they're not really sure which, convinced him to change the spelling to Holly. H-O-L-L-Y. Because it's easier. 
This episode of Based on a True Story this week was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. Before I let you go, while not historical events, there are some birthdays this week for people who have been mentioned in movies or TV shows. On January 31st, 1919, Jackie Robinson was born in Cairo, Georgia. His name was etched into the history books on April 15th, 1947, when he became the first black player in Major League Baseball. You can learn about his story in the 2013 movie called 42. And if you dare to go back to the very early days of Based on a True Story, we covered that movie in our very second episode. On February 4th, 1913, Rosa McCauley was born in Tuskegee, Alabama. She is better known by her married name, Rosa Parks. It was on December 1st, 1955, that she refused to move from her bus seat for a white passenger. She went on to be very active in the civil rights movement and collaborated on a made-for-TV movie about her life called The Rosa Parks Story, where she's played by Angela Bassett. On February 4th, 1902, Charles Lindbergh was born in Detroit, Michigan. He's been portrayed in a few different movies, including being played by Jimmy Stewart in the 1957 film named after Lindbergh's plane, The Spirit of St. Louis. Lindbergh was the subject of a lot of controversies because of his alleged ties to the Nazis in Germany. And that's something the HBO alternate history series, The Plot Against America, uses as its own storyline. In that series, Lindbergh is played by Ben Cole. If you're finding some value in Based on a True Story, you can support the podcast over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. There, you can also learn how to get ad-free versions and help keep the show going. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.